this next edition of Maverick Musician Podcast. The age of voice. There is an audience for every one of us. And some of you guys have been asking what the music is that I've been using. And it's from a project of mine along with Brian Kroll and Bob Stander uh, called My Son the Bum. And that's been a, it's been a really cool project. A lot of fun. Uh, so this is the, I'm using the music for the bumpers and the intros, and I'm also playing some of the full versions of the songs at the very end. So that's the answer to some of you guys, and I hope you enjoy the music. But this uh, particular podcast is a bit different for me. Uh, I am the actual subject of the interview. This was done by a contributing writer for Maverick Musician Magazine. His name is Mark Juracek, and he's a fantastic interviewer. And I'm the subject of the interview, so I th but I thought you guys might enjoy it. So I decided to put that in there, and I'm just giving a little pre-introduction to uh, Mark introducing me to you. <laughs> so without any further ado here, um, check this out. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll talk to you guys soon. Take care now. Enjoy the interview. Hey, welcome everybody to another Musician's Voice interview. Thanks for stopping by the blog. This interview is with drummer John O'Reilly. John, of course, is probably best known for his work with Trans-Siberian Orchestra. John heads out with the West Touring Group each year. Uh, the main focus of this one, however, is John's current endeavor, aside from TSO, which is the Stanley Spectre School of Drumming, located in Milford, PA, just a stone's throw from where I am at the moment. Uh, John gives a great background about the Spectre School. John was a student of Stanley's, and he wanted to see this thing continue uh, after Stanley had passed in 1987. Uh, aside from the background into the school, John does give a great insight into his, his own playing, his musical styles and uh, influences as well, a little personal history. And, of course... Uh, wouldn't be a, an interview with John without mentioning TSO. Uh, John talks a bit about how he got that gig back in 2002. And uh, uh, John also talks about some of his other past musical experiences, which does happen to include Richie Blackmore. John was a member of Rainbow during the mid-90s and uh, consequently ended up being an initial member of uh, Blackmore's Night. So this one is about a half hour in length. I do want to thank John for the chat. He's a great guy to talk to. Uh, I do recommend checking out his stuff. Uh, you definitely won't be sorry checking into John O'Reilly's resume. So uh, here it is. Enjoy John O'Reilly. Let me start out here, John. I guess what I want to ask you about your own experience as a player is uh, what influenced you to take up the drums, and then what was the turning point that told you uh, that you wanted to make a career out of playing drums? Well, uh, what started out as, I guess when I was a kid, I was probably 10, and my main influences at that time were really a lot of 
of jazz, a lot of big band music. See, my mother always had the radio on in our house, and she always had it tuned to this one station back in the 1960s. It was, uh, it was WNEWAM, and they played what would be considered now music, I guess, but they played a lot of different big band music, a lot of, um, I, I guess you'd even call it smooth jazz in terms of what it would be called today, but it wasn't called that then. Uh, so I just really grew up with that music around me all the time. And then some of my friends uh, took up playing drums. And I thought, okay, what the heck? Right. <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try it too. Sure. And then of course, you know, the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, so I got to see them when they were on, and all the whole English uh, music invasion that happened afterwards. And that was the start of my really wanting to play the drums. I, I found, um, I found that we finally moved into a neighborhood, a new neighborhood, where one day I discovered that there were a bunch of kids hanging around by the outside of our driveway talking, and I, I was playing drums inside, and I heard them talking about, you know, what kind of drum does he have, you know, these, you know, this, he plays loud, you know, there's all these different comments going on, and so I, I went outside, and I took a look, and there were like five guys out there, and it turns out they were like five drummers who lived all in the neighborhood. So I, I literally moved into a, a neighborhood that had drummers everywhere. And so we formed our own little clique of drummers, and we'd all drag our drums over to each other's houses and set up the giant drum set, put on records, and try to play along with them. We had a blast. We really did. Um, I was just very fortunate that I, I wound up getting involved uh, hanging around at a music store, a local music store. And through a weird little turn of events, I, I wound up getting a job carrying a band's equipment. Uh, this band, these guys were all older than me. I was very young. At that point, I was 14, 14 going on 15. And they were all much older than me, by, by much older, like 10. Some of these guys were married and had children. And they were a fantastic band. I had never seen a band like it. They were, they were like professional musicians. And I began to carry their equipment. And I carried that band's equipment from 1967 until 1972 or so. Uh, eventually, I wound up joining the band. And that was a, a New York City cult band by the name of J.F. Murphy and Salt. Uh, they had already done a couple of records on their own. With uh, They were signed to Elektra and they were signed to MGM Records. And the drummer left. And he, um, he basically, you know, I, I was put in this situation where I'd only played a few songs with the band, and all of a sudden one night I was the drummer. <laughs> it <laughs> happened, like, really fast. I, uh, I, I went out to record two albums with that band, and I stayed with that band until 1975 when, the, when it finally disbanded because it was just too hard to keep it together economically, and there was just a lot of personal conflicts inside of the band between some of the other players. So... That was really my start in the music business, and I just continued with it. I, I played with, gosh, so many different people over the years. I've worked with uh, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, Blackmore's Night, I've done some stuff with Yoko Ono, uh, and eventually winding up in Trans-Siberian Orchestra in 2002. And that's been a great experience. So that has really been a tremendous band, a tremendous opportunity. Um, it allows me to work for three three months out of the year, and I can essentially take the rest of the year off. So it, 
other interests, like the Stanley Spectre School of Drumming, uh, other online ventures that I'm doing. So all in all, that's how I got my start in the music business. It just it was just one of those things that just snowballed one sure. thing into another, and I had the real support of my family and my parents, and they completely understood what I was looking to do. Right. So now, tell me about the Stanley Spectre School, John. How did your involvement with it begin? Well, that happened back when I was just about 13 years of age, and my mother had no, nobody in my family had ever really heard me play drums before. I always played in solitude. I was always practicing by myself, and I put this big radio on, one that my mother always listened to on this one on her stations. And I would just, that's how I learned how to play drums originally. I just, I had no lessons and I would just pick it up by ear. And one day my mother came home from work early and she heard me playing drums and I stopped thinking, okay, I don't want to bother her with this because after all, it is a racket. It's making, it does make a bunch of noise. And she said, no, 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 continue to play. So I continued to play and she went into the other room. And we, uh, I played for about maybe half an hour, and then she came out, and she stood in front of the drum set, and I stopped and turned the radio off, and she said, how did you learn to do this? And I pointed to the radio, and she was like, you really have a talent for this. This is really something. You've played so many different styles of music in the last half an hour. What, what, what do you want to do with this? And, you know, I had always, you know, stayed awake late at night, and, and watched The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And I always waited for the intro. And maybe sometimes Buddy Rich might be on or some other group would be on. And I always watched the band and I realized that these guys here, they're on television, so they obviously they must be making money. They must be making a living somehow. And I told her, I just blurted it out, well, I want to be a professional drummer. And she looked at me and she went, well, I think you should get some lessons. And I thought, okay, why not? <laughs> let's try this and at that time I had been reading a lot of um, whatever I could find issues of Downbeat Magazine and back then Downbeat Magazine was the real um, Downbeat Magazine was the the magazine for jazz musicians and the jazz culture uh, a lot of articles and a lot of advertisements and I always saw the advertisement for the Stanley Spectre School of Drumming and they were really controversial Stanley's uh, advertising. First of all, he was the only drum teacher to ever be interviewed by Downbeat Magazine, which was pretty cool. And that was later on after I began to study with him. But in that time, his his ads were just so different and so controversial that I think they just caught your eye. So my mom said, who, who would you want to take lessons with? Is there somebody around here that you want to study with? And I went and I got one of my magazines and I showed her the ad. I think the headline in the advertisement is practicing can be detrimental to your career. Wow. <laughs> my, my mother read it and she went, really? And I said, yes. So she called up Stanley and Stanley did not take beginners. Stanley, especially a 13-year-old. He said, you know, have him play on his own, you know, have him be able to acquire as much natural ability as he can before he would come to somebody like me. But my mother was really persistent and called him over the course of about three days. Eventually, he gave in, and he decided he would take a look at me. But I had to really, like, almost audition for him. And he, uh, he taught and lived in Manhattan. So my father came with me to Manhattan, and I went, and literally, I auditioned for Stanley. And there was just something in the way that I played that he 
he found really fascinating that I had a certain style and a certain uh, innate ability to swing because of listening to all these big band records and, uh, and radio programs that my mother would listen to. So he decided to take me on. And that was the beginning of my association with Stanley Spector. Sure. His lessons are very different. They were very controversial. I didn't realize it at the time because to me it was, it was my first drum teacher, so I didn't think anything different of it. It wasn't until later after I stopped studying with him that it really began to hit me just how different his lessons were. At that time, that's when I first got introduced to this man, J.F. Murphy and Salt, and I began to travel a lot. And it was very difficult to maintain my lessons, even though Stanley had developed a full-on home study course that he recorded originally on reel-to-reel tapes and then transferred over to cassettes. But I just was not able to keep up with my studies, and Stanley and I parted ways, and we still kept in touch over the years. Uh, and when Stanley passed away in 1987, the school managed to stay open for a short period of time, but he was, uh, it was being run by one of Stanley's uh, top students, uh, a gentleman by the name of Rick Reed. But they just couldn't keep it going because Stanley had set it up in a way that it was a correspondence course. And it was, you know, all the tapes were sent through the mail back and forth, and Stanley would... Uh, basically critique your, he would like grade your lessons kind of, give you pointers as to what was, what was to be worked on and what was okay. But there were so many students that he had and all these different lessons going out through the mail coming back and forth, and it was just very hard to keep it together. Now, uh, fast forward to just about maybe seven months ago, I was here in my house and I was making room for yet another set of drums. <laughs> and and I, uh, I stumbled upon a box and I found the lessons inside of this box, and I went, wow, I haven't seen this book, these books, and I haven't seen any of this stuff in, gosh, almost 20 years or so. I had so much stuff that was in the storage before my wife and I moved up to Pennsylvania. I took out one of the manuscripts, one of the books, and I was able to play from memory the first page of exercises just by looking at them briefly and closing my eyes and using a technique that Stanley had taught me, which is using visualization and a certain memorization code when it comes to memorizing his lessons. And I was shocked at how much I remembered. I really was. And I scanned down to the bottom of the page and I saw the old phone number to the school and I thought, ah, let me just try it. I'll try calling the number and see. I figured I had no idea what was going to happen. And I called the number and I'm thinking, what if somebody answers the phone? Well, it's probably disconnected. Then this phone had got answered and this woman's voice on the other end said hello and I was stunned in a second and I kept trying to think of Stanley's wife's name and it just popped into my head, Astrid. And I asked her, Astrid? And she said, yes it is. And I was completely blown away that she still had the same phone number for over 40 something years and still had the same address in Manhattan. I explained who I was and being Stanley's youngest student at the time and she said, you know, I think I remember you. You came to the studio with your father. And that's when it all connected right there. And over the course of a couple of months, some correspondence, uh, Astrid sent me uh, a box of tapes that she, you know, she, she came out playing and said, I haven't seen Stanley's materials and his lessons for a long time. I have many of them, but they're in storage, and I have some in my closets here. She said, give me your address, and I'll send you some things. And about 10 days later, she sent me a box, and it had some of Stanley's cassettes, 
then I got kind of sad because I thought when Astrid goes, when she passes away or whatever happens, this, this stuff will disappear. All of his lessons will just disappear completely, and I thought this would be a shame. I have to be able to do something to try to preserve this because this is so important. I really felt it, and to this day I still feel it. So I took, uh, I took, uh, I, I took to writing my very first real long-form letter to Astrid, and she uh, eventually she answered me, and we struck up a real good conversation. And I explained that I really wanted to archive all of Stanley's material as much as I possibly could. And after doing it for a while, I realized that this material should be presented again to the public. So with uh, Astrid's blessings and consents, that's what I'm setting out to do. And I'm proud to say that the Stanley Spectre School of Drumming, in its online version, will be available, I'd say, probably by the 1st or 2nd of April. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah, it really is. A, it, it is amazing. Stanley recorded all of his lessons lessons 1 to 150 all on cassettes and that's what I spent the last like six months doing transferring over all of the cassettes into mp3s into a digital format putting them up onto a secured uh, membership site and all the materials everything 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 related to Stanley's teachings and his methods I'm going to reintroduce again to the growing community mm -hmm. and that's, this has been my real my real goal to do that because I feel that Anybody who's had a teacher who's had any impact on them should really find a way to preserve that teacher's methods. Because so many teachers and so many great methods get lost. You know, the books are becoming harder and harder to find, the older books especially. And they all have great value. So that's really the story with the Stanley Spectre School of Drumming. That's one of the projects that I've been working on. Now, John, you know, speaking of uh, the jazz-based drumming, uh, that that involves, uh, you know, it, as an outsider, it really does seem like uh, that style provides the most dexterity and probably overall musical rounding out of most genres. What does it really take to excel at jazz-based drumming? At jazz drumming? Well, uh, developing your ear. Developing your ear, developing uh, the concept of, uh, of music, of the form of music. It really is that. I mean, uh, if you were to take a look at some uh, some big band music, jazz drumming in particular, the, the way most of it was written was written pretty sparse. The drummer was really left up to his own to to, uh, to figure out exactly certain kinds of fills, certain kinds of things to put in place. Everything really wasn't written out note for note in, in many ways. Nowadays, a lot of guys are studying that way. But a lot of big band or head arrangements, as they're called, were pretty open, pretty open to interpretation. So developing your ear is really the foremost thing to be able to do. Uh, having a lot of dexterity, having a lot of chops, that is also, it's important to have that, but not to the point of where it's, it becomes a hindrance, where you just tend to, like Stanley, Stanley really believed in a, uh, that study of rudiments had its place. But the strict adherence of rudimental study and, and as a uh, and interpreting it with jazz drumming, he felt was more of a hindrance than anything else. It became more of a, a situation where muscle memory was the most important part as opposed to true improvisation. You know, just stringing different exercises together and using that to create drum fills is um, just stifling for a lot of guys.
guys. And that was a large part of Stanley's clientele were professional drummers who had essentially practiced themselves into a corner where they could no longer really improvise, uh, except dealing with playing, uh, stringing these different rudimental exercises together. That's where Stanley was. That's where Stanley was really great at. In a way, he was kind of like a combination of a camp counselor, a guru, you know, right. uh, you know, and, and a drum teacher. You know, he, it was more. It was Stanley was more about the person actually than than playing drums. Stanley's methods were definitely more than just drum lessons. Sure. Yeah, that's that's where Stanley would come off on that, and that's what I really feel too. Developing your ear is by far one of the most important things to do, as well as really uh, problem solving. Playing the drums in a lot of ways is a lot to do with problem solving, and that's what Stanley really excelled at too, trying to get you to open up and really try to figure out the problem. He'd give you a little bit of guidance, but he'd pretty much leave you on your own to figure it out, because if he just sat there and spoon-fed you the answers to everything, it wouldn't really be the way to learn. You know, when you learn something on your own and figure it out, that's the most important part. Oh, okay, I see. Right. Yeah, you know, Stanley really felt that if the student left a lesson with a crystal clear idea of what the lesson was about, then perhaps the lesson wasn't about very much. Well, you know, John, one of the questions I always wanted to ask a drummer that I've never actually been able to ask, I guess, is... Is it important, really any style, like even the most intense uh, metal styles, for example, is the is the uh, the player's physical uh, stature important? I mean, you see all these players with the, with the you know, like, take, for example, Dave Lombardo from Slayer. I mean, the guy, uh, the arms are just flailing around. Does, it, does your physical stature have an impact on your, uh, on your ability? Yeah, absolutely, especially in that genre, especially in any kind of speed metal where you go, where a drummer's playing blast beats. I mean, there are guys out there that are just amazing, and they're like machines. You know, they really are. That's a completely different style of music. It's almost like it's almost like a sporting event. I mean, you have to really train to be able to play this. They are. Uh, I'm really impressed by so many guys that are out there. Um, Gosh, there are so many great, great players. Chris Adler, he's fantastic out of Joey Jordanson. Uh, Dave Lombardo, of course. A completely different style of playing. Really, really. Um, Bobby, Bobby uh, God, who's another guy? God, oh, there are so many of these guys that are out there that are fantastic. I'm like almost tongue-tied trying to remember all right. their names. Yeah, there's a lot. But it's physical stature is really important in playing that style of music particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, jazz drumming, uh, it's not really that much. It's a different, totally different feel. It's a totally different feel, um, but it is not as required as, say, this whole speed metal thing. Right. That really does take, like, some real physical endurance to be able to play this material. Yeah, absolutely. It's something you won't, it's something you will not be catching me doing anything. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. A little bit about yourself, John, other than the school is, I'm curious, how did that initial TSO gig come about for you? Well, that came about from my association with Al Petrelli. Al and I had met each other back in the early to mid-80s. And at that time, 
uh, we had both been uh, doing a lot of uh, these records, uh, these instrumental records. A lot of the stuff that was for the Japanese, different Japanese labels. And that's how we first met. And we played on and off over the years. Um, and then eventually he moved on to go work with Sabotage. And I moved on to go work with Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. And then eventually I worked with Louis de and, and then Sabotage eventually became or sort of merged into the, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra through their producer, Paul O'Neill, who is the, uh, the creator of the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. So in 2002, I got the phone call from Al out of the blue, just completely out of the blue, and he asked me what I was up to and what I had been doing. And I told him what I was up to, and he said, well, you know what, I've got this possible thing opening up for you uh, with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. And they also have a situation where not only would there be an East Coast and West Coast band, but there's also a backup band that's involved as well. A band that would just stay at New York and rehearse in case somebody got sick or hurt and couldn't make a show. You had to be able to fly out within just a few hours' notice in order to cover this other person. Uh, the, whatever other drummer would be there. So that's how I was originally hired as a backup guy. And I went to some of the rehearsals and sat in with the band and learned some of the songs. And I just was thinking, this is, you know, my wife and I were just like, this is great, this is fantastic. You know, I got hired as the background uh, backup drummer. And I, my wife and I were just hanging out at home one night. And we're like, yes, this is going to be so cool. It'll be a Christmas time. And we'll have some extra money coming in. And this is going to be nice. And then the phone rang, and it was Al, and Al said, okay, here's the deal. The guy we have is not going to be doing the tour. It pays this. You leave this date. You come home on this date. Do you want the gig? <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at my wife, and I said, okay, here's what it does. Here's what it pays. Here's when I leave. Here's when I come home. Do I want the gig? <laughs> right. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, you do. And I was like, yes, I do. And that's how I got started with it. Oh, that's great. And that was in 2002. And I've been involved with them ever since. I, uh, it, to me, it's the best gig in the world. It really is because I get to, and not, not only do I get to tour with the band, I get to record with the band. There's my other counterpart on the East Coast band, Jeff Plate, and he and I share the recording duties as well as you know touring with the band. And it's great. I mean, it really is. You know, it's there aren't any, there aren't many opportunities where you can stay involved with with a band for as long as I have been involved in and where you can get to record with the band and you can get to tour with the band and, you know even though I may not be on the totem pole as far as as far as that goes but you know at least if I if I voice my opinion someone will listen to it so it, it really is great I, I, I have no complaints about it whatsoever to me it's the best gig in the world and I know that a lot of the drummers out there will probably say well I've got the best gig in the world as far as I'm concerned well now, that probably is true to them, but this to me is is really fantastic. It's a great organization to work with, and they treat everybody great, in my opinion. I've never had a problem with anything. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's how I got involved with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Well, well, you know, John, uh, obviously being a, a Pennsylvania guy myself, I've never been able to see you play with the band. I've, uh, I've had the opportunity to see Jeff a number of times at the gigs, but it's it's kind of fascinating watching him play especially with that electronic kit. And I wondered for you, what was that, what, what's it like playing on that kit? Do you have to adjust your attack much for uh, that type of unit? Yes, you really do have to change. 
plays the way that you play. Uh, for me, there are, there are a lot of things that we helps that helps us to that helps me to be able to make it feel more like an acoustic drum set. I have uh, some pretty intense these things that are called um, bumpers that are attached to the bottom of my drum throne. So every time that I hit one of the one of the pads, it'll actually vibrate the throne, so it feels like the entire platform is vibrating. As well as some pretty intense speakers behind me for low end speakers. So if you close your eyes and you're playing them, it really does feel like an acoustic drum set. And you get, you know, you get, because the drums are like the, basically the, the, the best that you can own out there, right? They are, they're Roland, and they're a fantastic company. These, uh, these heads are, they feel just like real, like, 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 you're, like, like you're playing an acoustic drum set. And it's really very, you can tension them to be very comfortable, but it just takes some time because the sizes are a little small. They're not the size that you can't get like a 16-inch pad. They don't make them. I think the biggest pad goes through about 13 inches. So you've got like 10 inches and 13-inch pads so that you have to be able to like get used to playing on a smaller surface than anything else. Right. But it's, you know, and they sound fantastic, and that's the great part about them is that you, you immediately you put them up and they sound exactly like they did the night before. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the consistency is really there. So yeah, you do have to take a little bit of time to get used to them. But you know, I've got a set here, Jeff has a set that's at his house, and you just are able to acclimate yourself before actually going to Omaha, which is where we start rehearsals usually. And then we uh, we take it off, we hit it off from there. Yeah. You know, one of the, the amazing things about that, that setup is just the uh, the sheer thunder that you get, you know, that fills the arena. Yeah, for sure. You really, you really have to be able to pay attention to what's happening and not get thrown by anything. Right. But after all these years of doing this with this all with this band, you know, it's like as soon as you get to that situation, it's it's like putting on a, a, a comfortable pair of shoes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. Really feel, you feel right at ease. So, other than uh, TSO, John, what were uh, some of your other favorite uh, situations you've been involved with? I know you mentioned. Rainbow, and I guess you were actually a part of Blackmore's Night for a while, too, is that right? Yes, I was in the first incarnation of uh, Blackmore's Night. I had, um, I had got, they had just started to put the band together, and I was having Christmas dinner out at Richie and Candace's house, and I had heard them, I had heard the record at the Christmas party a few days before, and I was really blown away by how great it was, the first record, Shadow of the Moon. And out of nowhere, Richie just turned to me and said, "We'd like you, you know, Candy and I would love you to be able to play drums. Would you? Uh, would you be interested?" And of course, I was like totally blown away. You know, I was completely blown away by that, totally unexpected. And I said, "Sure, absolutely." So, you know, we started rehearsals a few months later, and I did the first tour with Black Wars Night. We did Japan, Germany, Spain. Um, 
gosh, so many great places. Working with Richie was a, a blast with Richie and Candace because he didn't, he didn't stay in the normal places. Richie loved to stay in castles. Even to this day, they prefer to stay in castles more than anything else. So they find these really great out-of-the-way places. And sometimes they just even wind up holding concerts right there on the grounds. And they have, uh, they have been been doing this for so long now and have really built up a great following. I'm very proud of my association with Blackmore's Night that I was the first in the, in the first incarnation of that band. And still stay in touch with Richie and Candace even to this day. Oh, that's uh, good. Yeah, I was still, I still go. Yeah, you don't get invited to the Christmas party every year, but of course, <laughs> I'm never home. Yeah. So we're never able to make it. It's your busy time of year, yeah. Yeah, but he's, uh, you know, he's a good friend. I definitely, I, I miss not seeing him and Candace as much as I used to see them in the past. Yeah. No, that's and, great. That's a very uh, unique situation to be a part of. Yeah, it really was. It, it, was, it was a lot of fun. It definitely was a lot of fun. Uh, it was, it was, it was, like I said, it was a great experience. Yeah. That was a great experience. Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. That was my first real, real, real life. You know, real, I guess you probably could say real first really good money gig uh, back in 1994. I mean, that was fantastic. The, the way that we recorded, the way that we rehearsed, everything was really fantastic, and I was very proud of being involved in that last incarnation of Rainbow. Uh, from there, I went out to work with Blue Oyster Cult also. Did that for about a year and a half. And I did a whole bunch of stuff working with, uh, I was actually in, of all things, Harmon's Hermits, and that was a blast too, working with Peter Noon. Peter was... Peter still is to this day. He's a funny guy. He's a fun guy to work with, and I respect him a lot. And I had a great time working with Herman Sermons also. Wow, that's great. Yeah. I'm a very, a very fortunate guy. I'm a very fortunate guy to have had the career that I've had and to work with the people that I've worked with. You know, they are, uh, they've all been, they've all been a pleasure. I have, I have no ill feeling or ill will towards anybody they've ever worked with. Let me ask you this then, John, kind of in, in wrapping things up. Uh, what does it take to be a successful working musician other than, you know, the obvious fluency in a, a bunch of different musical applications? What does it actually take to uh, to succeed at, you know, being out there in uh, every musical situation that you've been in? Learning how to live with a high degree of uncertainty. Hmm. Definitely that. Absolutely. This is not a career for the weak-hearted at all. And Fortunately, a lot of it's so different now than it was when I first got involved with this whole business. I mean, it has really become big business. There are so many people that are out there trying to do the same thing. Uh, it's it's very competitive now, way more than it's ever been before. So you really do need to develop an incredibly thick skin, uh, be able to take rejection, and be able to uh, just persevere, persistence. If you really feel that you've got the ability, that you have the talent, and if other people have told you so, absolutely stick with it. Do not give up. Don't stop. That's really the, uh, uh, besides learning how to live with that high degree of uncertainty, is just the, willing, the, the, willing, the willingness not to stop, to keep moving forward, to keep working on yourself, to keep working on your career, to understand the power of all the things that are available to you because the industry has changed so much that there's 
more opportunity now to get your your music or your message out to the world than ever before. With the advent of YouTube, with Facebook, Twitter, social messaging. I mean, there's so much that's available now. And it's easy to get lost in all of that, too. Mm. And, but, but again, it's, it's staying focused and never giving up. That's the most important part of it. And, of course, working on your craft. And there's a lot to that. But if you can work, I've, I've met so many guys who are fantastic players, guys that can blow me out of the water, but they just don't have that that thick skin. They don't have the ability, maybe it's ego or lack of ego, um, to get out there, to really put themselves out on the line, to be critiqued by other people. You have to be able to do that. Yeah. And not sure. give up. And not give up. Record yourself, critique yourself, go over everything that you have to do before you even present yourself to somebody else. Just make sure that you're not going to look foolish. But even if you do look foolish, just never stop. Just keep going for it. And there you have it. A very strange interview on my part, only because I'm not used to being interviewed. So thank you again, Mark Urichek, for interviewing me. And that, that was for also for Connections Magazine. That's a magazine that's up here in Pike County, Pennsylvania. That's part of an actual uh, transcript of a printed article that was done by Mark. Uh, on me and thank you again so much for coming by here and I will be in touch and let you know what's going on please come by and check it out and feel free to rate this podcast and subscribe to it let me know what your feedback is give me a hand and help me get this thing up and off the ground a little bit more than it already is anyway thank you so much take care of yourselves and I will talk to you or talk at you or with you very soon take care